You are listening to the Senior Pastor Podcast, where four giants of the Restoration Movement walk us through the issues facing the church today. Your four hosts are Bob Russell, Don Wilson, Ken Eidelman, and Scott Rawlings. Before we begin, a word from our sponsor. With more than 7,000 investors, the Solomon Foundation is committed to helping the local church grow. When you partner with the Solomon Foundation, you get an excellent return while making an eternal impact. Start today at www.thesolomonfoundation.org. Welcome back to the Senior Pastor Podcast. I am your host, Matt Rawlings, Teaching Pastor Christ Community Church in Portsmouth, Ohio. I am joined by three of the four senior pastors, Bob Russell, the founding pastor of Southeast Christian Church, and the head of Bob Russell Ministries, and Ken Eidelman, the former president of Ozark Christian College and the former senior pastor of Crossroads Christian Church, and Scott Rawlings, the founding pastor of Christ Community Church. Well, we've talked a lot about culture. We're going to talk a little bit more. One of the things that I have heard and want your gentleman's opinion on is that what we're going through with culture now with emotions kind of trumping logic and so forth and my truth versus your truth and all this other kind of stuff. Some people say that in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, we went through this before, that we've seen some of this before. Do you agree? And if so, how did you deal with it? You know, when you're dealing with whether it's the Jesus people, you know, or whether it's the hippies or, or whatever, you know, where you had that kind of of, you know, and I know, Dad, I, I know from experience that you dealt with this in the 70s. You had young people interested in Wicca and witchcraft and all the other kind of stuff. We've been down this paganism road before. How do we address it? Or, and do you agree that that's a parallel first? And then we'll talk about whether or not to address it. Bob, what do you think? Well, I don't know that there's anything new under the sun. Yeah. I, I, I think there have always been those who deny the reality of God or the reality of truth but not to the degree that we're seeing in our culture today. It is so permeated education, entertainment, business, even athletics, ESPN, are so saturated with the uh, liberal philosophy that it it is just overwhelming almost. Uh, When I was a boy, there were people who didn't go to church, but there was kind of a common consensus of truth. Everybody realized that in the Bible, there was a standard that was the basis of right and wrong right. in our culture. But I, I think that has rapidly changed to the point where we are in the minority today. This is a post-Christian culture. Now, one of the suggestions that I hear from people is we can't argue from the Bible anymore because people don't believe the Bible. Right. And I think we make a terrible mistake by acquiescing to that because the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. It's our sword, mm-hmm. it's, it's our weapon. And when we bring in Scripture, even if people don't believe it, I think we're releasing the power of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. to convict people. And so, yeah, we have seen, um, Ken, I'm sure you've seen it. You know, we had a poll came out just a couple of weeks ago from 1998 to today, the value of faith, people putting on faith was like 68% and 98, now it's 32%. The only thing of those values that increased since 1998 is the value of money, people's desire for money, mm-hmm. everything else, family, faith, children, everything dropped. What are we going to do? One of the things that was characteristic of an Ozark Christian College education, Ozark Bible College education, actually, before I was 
I came on the scene in 1973 as a teacher, taught for four years, and then moved into administration. And uh, one of the geniuses, and one of the things I really resonated with at Ozark was the way the curriculum was structured. It was structured around apologetics and hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Apologetics, the defense of the, of the faith, the defense of the Bible, and hermeneutics, how to read, understand, interpret the Bible. Mm-hmm. On top of that, you had your Bible courses and then the practical courses. So that, that was the way the curriculum was structured. Apologetics, hermeneutics, Bible, and the exegetical study of the Bible books, and then practical courses. And one of the reasons why I think why the college has been really stable through the years and is thriving today, I was just down there in February and just fun to go there and uh, see what's what's happening. But I think one of the things that that has that has been maintained that helps you stand against the trends toward liberalism and left thinking is uh, if you if you have got a, a system, and I think the local church, there needs to be an element of apologetics in our preaching today. Yeah. And, and of course, hermeneutics is the foundation of, of good preaching, hermeneutics and homiletics. And I think that's the thing that, you know, we've talked about a lot of the DNA crossover between Ozark Christian College and Southeast Christian Church is there's always been an element of apologetics in preaching that's been a part of the, the church here. And I, I think the, the church health, Bible college health, is very directly related to that. And that's what helps you stand up against the, the assault from the culture, mm-hmm. liberalism that's so prevalent today. You know, Ken, the, the longer I preached, the more confidence I got in the Bible, in, in the power of the Scripture to really convict people. How many times have you guys had somebody come up to you and say, I struggled with a problem a few months back, and I didn't know what to do, came to church, and I couldn't get over it. You preached on that very subject, mm-hmm. and you feel so good, and then you look back at what you preached on had nothing to do with their, sub, their problem. <laughs> it's just the Holy Spirit works through the, the preaching of the Bible. The longer I preach and got a, a, a distance from it, the more I'm impressed with the genius of our movement, with the restoration appeal. Mm. Our founders weren't perfect. And we went through a period in the 50s and 60s where we got pretty legalistic and sectarian. But just to go back to Scripture, there's a book, Captives of the Word. We're we're, we're supposed to be a people of the book. And when we keep coming back to that as a source of truth, I think that's where our strength lies. I think Bob is right. We don't, we've never seen it to this extent, but you in the early 70s had a lot of experience with people coming in barefoot, <laughs> walking in hippies who had some questionable moral you know, choices and lack of direction there, and they would come into the church. And how did you deal with it? The one thing that everybody agreed with, because that was the Jesus movement. That yeah, Jesus the, Revolution the, film. film. This is all about. It all started there in the 70s with Chuck Smith and what he was doing there on the West Coast. And, but yeah, we had interesting things for, for reasons that only God knows. On a Sunday morning, there would be as many as 150, and this was a church start, <clears throat> mm-hmm. 150 teenagers show up. Some of them were actually high while they were there. But what I found out is all of these hippie types and the influence that was there at the time, the one thing that everybody cared about was love. And everybody accepted that one. The problem was the definition. Yeah, Love to them was fulfilling your lust and the, and the filth of the flesh, right. really. And, and that was love. And free love was talked about. I spent a lot of time just defining agape. 
everybody knows eros that's the sexual attraction mm -hmm. and and oh the friendly thing and anybody's capable of that but the whole idea of someone caring about someone else to the extent you're willing to sacrifice to to, to help them that, that wasn't even on the table mm -hmm. but it, that that's what jesus did god is love and and when i found out when you could actually show that what was being promoted as love was really selfishness as opposed to what the bible said about love there's something really really attractive about people willing to sacrifice in order to benefit the mm -hmm. other person and that's what jesus did that's what god did in sending his son into the world and and that started taking root that started producing fruit the result was really heartwarming for us i mean we had we had things that would happen because there were lots of exciting things associated with it because most of the people coming to church were teenagers and teenagers as you know like you said visiting back at school and when you're there's an excitement that they bring it's like going to a ball game with a bunch of kids i mean you get goosebumps when you don't even are not even capable of producing goosebumps and it, and it happens it's really wonderful and and that excitement was there and and i found out that uh, if and when they understood the love of god as demonstrated in in christ jesus they were willing then to jump in and because kids are are cause oriented anyway right we developed things like the single parents fair where you know single parents would come in and we'd cut their kids hair we did oil changes and oil changes were free we, they went home with the kroger's gave us the, the baskets to push around mm -hmm. the, the they went home with groceries and they got really excited about that because you were doing something for somebody else, mm -hmm. which is an expression of love. If we're capable of uh, getting people biblically oriented in that particular area because it clearly identifies selfish motives when you're looking and this feel-good thing that you were talking about yeah. earlier, that's all selfish. Most of it is selfishly motivated. The feel-good thing does come with obedience, though. It really does. I think all of us who have been to a hospital where someone is in yeah. really serious trouble, pray with them, and you give them hope of eternal life. And you, when you go back to the car, your feet hardly touch the ground. You just sort of float back. You know God has used you to do something that really needed to be done that wouldn't have been done if you hadn't done it. Now, I don't think there's anything in all of life that is any more heartwarming and exhilarating than to know God has used you. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. But getting people to, you know, getting people on a cause is going to get them there, but getting them to listen to the truth, that's what I want to talk about next, which is because I think there are parallels. And I've read ever since the Jesus Revolution movie came out, I've read a lot of people saying that there are parallels between the 60s and today. But I, I agree with Bob that it's worse now. I think that those families, the, the basic family unit has moved so far away from the church. And because of that, you get into the emotional thing, and it's it's my emotions determine truth, and you know the Bible's just another book, and you know, and all that kind of stuff that we're we're, we're viewing. Uh, one of the people I listen to is a doctor who says in our culture, almost every road today leads to narcissism in our secular culture. It's all about me. You, you tell people if you don't see that, just drive around a Walmart parking lot for five minutes and you'll see it. But I think some of the things we've picked up on past podcasts, if there is any kind of correlation between then and now, 
between coming out of the 60s and hopefully what we saw with young people attracted to the revival at Asbury and so forth, if there is something going on there. One of the things I've heard you say, Bob, and we talked to Dr. Moeller about and what Chuck Smith did, what amazes me, because I've read about the Jesus People movement, I wasn't alive then, but I've read about it, you know, when they dragged Chuck Smith to the beach and said, look at all these people who need Jesus, his, his response was, what they need is a haircut and a shower and a job. And but He, he was re- right there, too. <laughs> <laughs> but he reluctantly preached to them, and, so, and he preached, to go back, verse by verse through scripture. Chuck Smith preached from Genesis to Revelation and then back again, verse by verse, and look who he attracted. Do you think that's a key to getting back there, Bob? Oh, I, I really do. And I think we've tried so many gimmicks and so many different approaches that we just would be better off going back to basics and back to simplicity. I have two grandsons who are teenagers and they went to the Asbury Revival. Mm. I think one went four times. Wow. <laughs> And I said, Andy, what, what was there about the revival that you really thought was special? He said, you know, Pop, there weren't any smoke machines. There mm. weren't any strobe lights. There was no famous band. He said, I think my generation, we like it simple. And, you know, every generation has to change methods. Right. We would laugh at yesterday's generation for insisting on choir robes, hymnals, and singing do lord Mm -hmm. but i wonder if this generation is so ingrained now in the praise band and all the gimmicks that go along with that that are they willing now to say okay that had its era and we need to go back to basics and back to simplicity i think there would be a healthy response to that and if i were starting a church today I wouldn't try to compete with the mega church down the street or the medium-sized church that had a good praise band. I think, I don't know that I'd go back to acapella, but I think I would go back to simplicity. And yeah. I would go back to say, okay, we're going to teach the Bible verse by verse and let it stand on its own. Let, it, let the Holy Spirit convict through the simple preaching and teaching of the Word. Right. All right. Ken, what do you think? Yeah, obviously, I'm committed to that. I do think that a few years ago, when we began to direct praise directly to God in worship, that was new to me. I grew up as a young man, and take your hymnal, turn to page 222, sing the first, second, fourth verse, standing on the fourth verse. And that was that was fine. It served me well. Mm-hmm. Well, they're going to do it in heaven. Exactly. <laughs> you know, when I wound up... Uh, in 1973 as a 25-year-old uh, teaching at the Bible College at, at, at Ozark, uh, I became, got introduced to some music and worship that was, that was different than what I was used to, but I thought some of that was healthy. Now, I think, as is often the case, the, swing, the pendulum swings too far one direction. And uh, so today, I, I could take, right now, I could queue up worship service in a church in Las Vegas, and you would not recognize it as Christian worship, you would think you were at a Las Vegas show. Right. So that's the swing, one swing of the pendulum. I do think that there's some value to mixing the, the music and the lyrics of the, the hymns of the past and the worship music that's, that's directed to the Lord from the heart of people has, has real value. I'm, I'm an advocate of inter, intergenerational, what I call intergenerational worship. Where, as, as my, my son says, if everybody's 
dis a little bit dissatisfied, that's you're probably right in the right place. <laughs> you right. Know, if if you've got people on both sides of that that issue, we don't sing enough the old hymns. We we don't sing enough of the new music. You're probably in the right place. Let's take a moment to hear from our sponsors. With more than 7,000 investors, the Solomon Foundation is committed to helping the local church grow. When you partner with the Solomon Foundation, you get an excellent return while making an eternal impact. Start today at www.thesolomonfoundation.org. I remember I, when I was young and some of those hippies ended up becoming business people and so forth. Preachers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of them did they too. Yeah. The best ones, yeah. And you would occasionally do topical sermons, but you were preaching verse by verse a lot then. And so... I do a book at a time, really, is the way I did it. You, you make exceptions, like when 9-11, sure. we shut down everything and, and address that. And, and there were times when you made exceptions. I believe in patriotism. I'm, I'm unashamedly a, a patriot. Mm. And I feel sorry for everybody else who isn't, you know. So I make exceptions for those special times. But, you know, I think if you, you saintly people here need to get into the world where I listen to, I, I listen to Waylon and Willie and the boys. And they, <laughs> they, they say we ought to go to Lukenbach, Texas with them, you know. And, and uh, I've been to Lukenbach, Texas. I, I, There's a post office, a recording studio, and a stop sign, and that's it. That's, that's all that's in Lukenbach, Texas. And you can't find it because everybody steals the signs. Yeah, but, see, <laughs> but the message was get back to the basics yeah, of life. Right. And that's really what you're talking about yeah. here, getting back to basics, because we live in a terribly confused world. And I'm talking about bright young minds that are confused. And the message of simplicity with a great deal of clarity is, I think, desperately needed. Well, keep that's, it simple, but, but keep it biblical. You know, Becky Pippard is, uh, remember that name, Out of the Salt Shaker and mm -hmm. some other books? She's in her older years now, but she has spent some time in recent years speaking on college campuses in Europe. And she said the kids in Europe gobble up the stuff about the gospel because they're the third generation removed from it. Mm -hmm. And it's, in a sense, rebelling against their parents to begin to investigate Christianity. <laughs> so it really goes over well. Here's coming from a 70-year-old woman. But I, I think the kids of the next generation are, are going to be so far removed from Christianity, it's going to be something new to them. And we don't have to package it in some glamorous uh, contemporary package so much as just get out there with the basics and let the Word of God and, and the gospel do its work. Yeah, the power of the Holy Spirit is something historically in the Christian churches that we did not make clear to our people who he is and how effective he is as our master teacher. You know, and I've seen some things in the last few years that for years I didn't think could happen. God is in the business of getting the job done. Uh, I have a friend. I'd like to bring him over here sometime and introduce you to him. He's probably started himself over 2,000 churches, 2,000 church plants. Whenever a church starts, and it's in Uganda. His name is Alex Metalla. He has this rule. He said, okay, as soon as you've got your congregation fully established, you pick four guys and you start training them to preach and to teach the gospel because they're going to end up being the next guys that we send out to plant a church. 
And right now, we have 36 churches that are committed to that in Uganda and to, to a concept of, of village transformation. And the reason that becomes really important is because Muslims are, 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 are saying, hey, here's the way you get to the next generation. So they're starting schools, good ones, and they have the, enough money that they could buy out heaven because they have all that oil money from Saudi Arabia, and they use it for that purpose. Don't kid yourself. One thing, again, that you need to keep in your mind, everybody's attracted to love, and the word love is not in the Koran. It isn't there. So guess what? The last time I preached, which was uh, at a... A little church there in Kampala. You know what I'm going to be talking about. And the driver that we hired for years, he changed. He was raised Roman Catholic. You all know as well as I do that most Catholics don't know much about the Scripture. They let their priests take care of that for them. Even this. Even, and anyway, he was right. Then he married a Muslim girl. And everybody knows who you sleep with has a lot of influence in your life. And so he started going to the mosque. Not too long ago, he, his first wife was washed away in a flood. She died a horrible death. So he married this young girl that had a classy chassis, as Matthew liked to say. Yeah, that's Matthew, what you like to oh, say. That, that wasn't me. Matthew, the 25th <laughs> chapter or the 26th chapter? Oh, you're talking about your Yeah, it's, it's, it was probably there, too. <laughs> I remember that being in the Bible. Yeah. Anyway, chance. she left him, and now he was alone. And when I issued the invitation at our church, and, and I'm, I do the Billy Graham thing, you know, he said, you preach and then you pray. And so I had my head bowed. I didn't. And here stood old Hassan. He changed his name from Andrew to Hassan when he started going to the Muslim mosque. And I said, what are you doing down here? He said, I want to be born again. And he was. And they're going to baptize him because I sent a note out yesterday to Patrick and Eddie, hurry up, I need a picture of him being baptized because he wanted to be baptized in Lake Victoria. Matthew had a problem with that. Because the, the most notorious crocodile in the world who's, who's eaten at least 83 people used to swim around Lake Victoria. I wouldn't get baptized there. <laughs> yeah, 16 and a half foot crocodile. Yeah, but he's a man of faith. So yeah, right. okay. In contrast to uh -huh. Matthew. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't cite the research, but I remember doing some research of my own here a few years ago about um, discipling happening in the home and the family, and it uh, it cited the fact that the the students who embrace the faith, uh, young people who embrace the faith, came from homes where parents were all in for Christ and the church. They were all in, or young people who were from non-Christian families who connected up with a youth pastor or a Christian friend who invited them to youth meeting or so The highest mortality rate, spiritual death in, in the college, high school and college years was for the kids that were raised in nominally Christian homes. Right. Where the parents were, had a very shallow commitment or they were on the perimeter as far as the life of the church is concerned. And I started thinking about that from the standpoint of my, my church, just observation. And boy, that, that just held, held it true. It is. The, the families that were, were all in in the local church, the kids came up and were right there. And I'm not talking just about attendance. I'm talking about stewardship, service, 
um, all in pay. as well as worship, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because it's possible to be in this middle group and to be faithful in worship, but never, there's no spiritual counsel at home. There's no substantive prayer at home, maybe prayer before a mealtime once or twice a week. And just seeing that and how true that was, that the, the easier to reach kids are from the non-Christian homes and the kids are all in or from homes where mom and dad were all in. How many churches would be without a preacher today? if it weren't for preacher's kids as preachers. There's an, all three of That's us. That's one of the that, reasons the Roman Catholics are having a hard time uh, finding priests. It makes sense, yeah. And it may be why the Pope is reconsidering marriage for, yeah, for priests. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but going back to the simplicity of reaching people and going back to the culture today, of course, you guys know, I don't know how many people listening know, how much of an impact Walter Scott's five-finger exercise had on just spreading the gospel right? Very simple. Everybody could memorize it. And it was just, I I looked it up because I want to make sure I got it right in the right order so that people don't attack me online. But faith, repentance, baptism, remission of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit. And it was just boom, 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 boom across the plains. And he would do that. I heard Fred Craddock talk about how Wesleyan ministers would memorize all these sermon outlines that John Wesley or George Whitfield or whoever had delivered and just go out and repeat them. Always very simple, you know, usually three points back then. Boom, boom, boom. And maybe that's what we need to get back to. At the college, we did not let a student graduate that could not present the gospel in a literate way. And mm. and they had to have presented the gospel. We didn't just teach personal evangelism in class. You had assignments to go out and do practical evangelism in the local church. And, and as a young man, I remember Carl Morehouse was my personal evangelism teacher, uh, Chicago District Evangelizing Association, planted churches there. He would load us up in buses and take us to sketchy neighborhoods in greater Chicago right. and let us out. And we'd come back at the end of the day and we'd tell about our experiences. But that was jumping into the deep end of the pool. But it was it was a great exercise for those of us who were Bible college students. And that presentation of the gospel, whether it's that, mm-hmm. that simple approach, we've got to get back to presenting the gospel to people. In, yeah. We may not be able to do it in their homes because homes are kind of sacrosanct. And Especially days. for the younger generation. They just kind of push you away from it. It's almost weird for you to but knock you, on their door. Yeah, But if you build a friendship bridge and sure. you have coffee at Starbucks with somebody, yeah. get around to talking about the things that matter. And, yep. and not just whatever basketball tournament or the so bachelor. I go to whether Kentucky's playing or not. Well, I just, I, you know, we had Dr. Moeller in here earlier. I heard him say on one of his podcasts in the briefing, he said, you know, he, he, na- he named a number of different evangelistic programs and techniques. He said, I may not be a fan of all of these, but he said, at least it's something. People were doing something, whether it was the D. James Kennedy method or whatever it was. It was people were trying to reach out for the gospel. For myself, I sit to people down. I go through Second Corinthians five twenty one. I just unpack it. You know, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I just kind of unpack what that means and go from there. But I think what I hear you guys saying as we wrap up this episode is just that yeah, we've got significant challenges. There is some parallel in the mindset between kind of the hippies and, and the modern teenager and early 20-somethings, and early 30-somethings. But unfortunately, as Bob, as you brought up, today they're just much more detached from the faith than those in the 60s and 70s because they probably even the 60s and 70s had parents or grandparents or so forth who took them to church and so forth, and that's not happening today. Yeah. Well, Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. Right. And somehow 
along the way, we've forgotten the primary mission of the church, right. which is to evangelize and then to disciple. Mont Smith was a professor of New Testament at what used to be Pacific Christian College, now Hope International University. He took his doctorate in evangelism at uh, nearby Fuller. He did an extensive survey, and I would round off the statistics. We discovered most people became Christian because somebody invited them to come to church. Right. In the age of attractional versus missional and all, again, it's still a friend sits down and invites somebody to come to church. Come sit with me. And they sit with you. They feel kind of comfortable. They come back, and about 10 months later, they've given their life to Christ. Mm-hmm. But the second question he asked was, who invited you to church? Mm-hmm. And I'm rounding off, like 40% were invited by somebody who was a Christian for less than a year. 30% by somebody who's a Christian for less than two years. The percentages kept declining. And here's the disturbing statistic. Less than 2% were invited by somebody who had been a Christian for six years or more. Wow. Indictment, isn't it? Which means the longer we're Christian, the less evangelistic we are. And we excuse it by saying, well, the new Christian has more more contacts, the new Christian has more enthusiasm, he's not been rebuffed. But the truth is, we learned to spiritually isolate ourselves. Like John Stott said, evangelism is prickly. If, the, if we can do social action and we can just love people and be kind to people, everybody endorses that. Even the world likes it if we're putting backpacks on the, the, the kids going to school. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things, but our, we get away from our primary purpose, which is evangelism. So I think the church needs to intentionally find ways to re- give people a reason to invite Years ago, our Easter pageant was an opportune time just to invite somebody to come see the Easter pageant. But I don't care if it was the first responders day or school teachers day, or I was at a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. They came in, everybody received two Cinnabons when they came to church. <laughs> and the preacher said, one of these Cinnabons is for you to eat. The other one, we want you to find a friend who's not a Christian and give it to them, tell them to enjoy it, but say something about Jesus as a bread of life. How about you come into church with me on Easter? Corny, maybe, but you know, a few people came. And, and we need to intentionally find ways to restore the passion for evangelism in people. It was talking about heaven and hell. And, you know, Paul never no, didn't become so sophisticated that he quit evangelizing. He, he said, I would give up my own salvation for the sake of my brothers. Most of us forget about that. I have been stimulated lately by a brand new Christian named Joel Cecil here at mm-hmm. Southeast, commercial real estate guy, single guy, 27 years old. He's discovered the Lord like a treasure in a field. And mm. he is bringing his, he's got friends. He's so much fun to see. His likability is off the yeah, charts. Great. And his circle of friendship, he's bringing yeah. young men to everything we can get them to. Uh, Six o'clock in the morning, man challenge. I almost want to say that he brought three new guys as fast as they're sitting at our table. And I, Joel, I just don't know about bringing these guys at six o'clock in the morning. Isn't this that is, great, though? This is about entry level. Reminds you what we're all about. It does, and it's and it has really stimulated the, me. To, the, the church needs to see the preacher bringing somebody yeah. and the elders bringing somebody, not losing that passion for evangelism. Yeah. That's why I like baptisms here at Southeast. I remember one time a middle-aged guy had a little eight-year-old child and an old man beside him. And he said, today I have the privilege of baptizing my eight-year-old son and my 80-year-old dad. Wow. I want to say a word to those of you who are praying for your relatives. Never give up. Wow. 
I should have just not even preached that day. Mm -hmm. That kind of passion for evangelism, we've got to find some way to recapture that in the hearts of our people. Joel brought his mother to a Christmas service. Mm -hmm. She has not missed church since she was never in church before. He's brought his brother his, his older brother, his brother has come, and they ha- all are reflecting his spirit of discovery. <laughs> and so when you see that, yeah, you say, great. man, I got to have that. You know, spirit. something else happens when, when you're aware of somebody sitting beside you or you brought somebody, you are a much better listener much less critical listener, mm-hmm. more supportive, more prayerful, because you're hearing the, the gospel through that person's ears and wondering how they're receiving it. Mm-hmm. makes the whole, the whole church service more meaningful to you. It's, it's a shame. You, you mentioned this earlier that the longer you go to church, unfortunately, the less evangelistic you tend to get. I remember years ago, Dad and I were leading a campaign to have so many Baptists, so many conversions, so many baptisms. We'd have, you know, we had numbers all over the church building showing how many we'd baptized and so forth. And we were talking to people and just saying, look, invite non-Christians to church. Just invite them to church. That's the first thing you need to do. Just say, I'll I'll be waiting for you at the front door. You can sit with me. And I had people tell me, people who'd been Christians 20, 30 years, I don't know any non-Christians. Everybody ought to have a project. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody ought to say, here's one person right now I'm working on that Mm -hmm. I'm praying for. And, yeah. and I think the longer you're Christian, the more you learn to just withdraw from the world. Yeah. Uh, and you go to the ball games and you, you go to the restaurant, but that's not on your mind. Right. We just can't let the good news become the old news, you know? Yep. Yes. Well said. Very well said. Well, let's wrap up this episode with that. I want to thank everyone for listening. And so remember, when you want ministry wisdom, you go to those who have been there done that. Thanks for listening. This has been the Senior Pastor Podcast, a production of 1801 Media Incorporated. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode.